So uh, this morning, we have what, what we call a child dedication. And before I bring up the Havener family, I want to just give you a brief explanation of what it is and what it's not. It's a really exciting opportunity uh, this morning because here's, here's what we're doing this morning. We're, we're coming alongside a family, uh, in this case a family who has adopted two boys and called them their own. And now we're going to come alongside and support them and we're going to say to them, as you commit to follow the Lord and to point your boys toward the Lord, we're going to come alongside you, hold you accountable to that, and also support and, and, and help you however we can in that by teaching them as well, by modeling for them as well. We're going to get to make that commitment this morning. Um, here's what it's different from. What we're not doing this morning is a baptism. Okay, we're, That's different. And maybe some of you have grown up or attended church traditions where they have newborns or they have kids and they baptize the kid. And, and we're not doing that this morning because here's, here's what we believe water baptism is. Here we believe that the scriptures teach water baptism is something that you do once you've placed your trust in Christ. And then the next step after that is to be baptized. And that's a public profession. That's a public proclaiming of what has taken place inwardly. And so a child, an infant, is not able to do that. And so that's why we don't practice the uh, child baptism. Now, the churches that some of you may have attended where you've seen that done, a lot of times the understanding and the teaching in that is that we baptize the kid, bring them into the covenant family until they're able to make a decision on their own. But we don't find that there's any scriptural warrant for that, or we don't think the weight of the scripture is behind that particular um, that particular position. We believe that it is a person who places their trust in Christ at whatever point that is in their life, and then they... They get baptized. And so that, that's the difference here. So I want you to understand, because what we're not seeing this morning, we're not seeing these boys get saved this morning. And that's key, because what we're coming alongside uh, Lynn and Stephen and their family this morning is, is we're saying, we're coming alongside you this morning, and we're going to support you as you and, and your family model. We're going to model, because our goal is the same as your goal. We want to see these boys uh, come to know Christ. And so we're going to pray for the family, we're going to pray for the boys, and we're going to commit ourselves you that uh, this morning. So if I can invite Lynn and, and Stephen and, and your family up here, you guys can come on, come on up. So we've got Stephen and Lynn and Tyler, and then we've got James in the blue shirt and Eli in the green shirt. And uh, most of you, I think, who are here probably know the story. Um, but James and Eli, for a while, you guys had them as foster kids, Correct. How long was that, that process for you guys? Six months. And through that process, they continued to pray. They continued to seek uh, God's wisdom and leading and ended up ultimately adopting it, uh, which is a fantastic uh, thing because it gives us a picture that many of us will never experience. You know, in the scripture, it talks about God when he saves us. One of the things that he does is he adopts us through his beloved son, Jesus, and he calls us his own. These boys and this family now have this picture in a way that's unique uh, that most people will never get. Because as these boys grow up, they're going to know and hear the story of how Lynn and Steve and, and Tyler brought them into their family, gave them all the rights of sons in their family, treats them just like they were uh, you know, any other child in their family, and they have been called Lynn and Steven's own and Tyler's own. And so as they grow up, that's going to be a tremendous opportunity for them to be able to explain God does the same thing with us. And so what a neat picture. And, and I know many of us have been blessed to watch you guys walk through this, uh, to step out and risk 
such a, a, an un, you know, uh, a whisper to look for. You, you just don't know what's coming. You know, there, there's just unknowns involved in it. So uh, we are we're really blessed by this. And to see these boys, I, I love seeing these boys smile. I mean, I love seeing these boys smile. So, all right, well, let me uh, let me pray for you guys, and and uh, we'll uh, then ask some questions here. So as we're as we're standing up here with Lynn and Stephen, let me ask Lynn and Stephen, you guys first as parents, uh, will you guys commit to point James and Eli and do whatever you can to model to teach them in the Lord so that they would know His love, see His love through you? Okay. And uh, to you, church here, I'm going to ask you. Uh, if you will commit to support Stephen and Lynn as they raise these two boys and they uh, try to point them to the Lord, will you commit to model, to teach, and to do what you can as the body of Christ to support this family and point these boys to the Lord? And if so, just say you will. With that, let me uh, me pray for you. Father, we are so blessed by you, by your love for us, the way that you've adopted us, and called us your children because of Christ. Thank you for these boys, for James and Eli. What a blessing they are to this church already, and I know to this family, a huge uh, joy. God, would you put your hand on these boys? Would you uh, guide their lives? Would you direct them, and would you open their hearts early, God, so that they might understand that your love uh, through Christ for them? Would you help them to understand the gospel and to place their trust in the truth of the gospel, that they might know you as their heavenly Father and be called children of God as well. God, we pray for Lynn and Stephen and and Tyler and pray that you will continue to give them the wisdom they need to parent, to be a big brother, that you will give them the insight they need to uh, to raise these boys and to model the great love that you have for us to these boys. And God, as a church, we pray that you help us to support them and to point them toward Christ as well, so that ultimately, God, you would receive all the glory in this family, and in these boys' lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You guys go ahead and be seated. Let's try it again. Good morning. Yeah, I figured. I figured it'd be better that time around. Well, hey, go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning, and we're going to start out in Mark chapter 15. If you need a Bible this morning, there are some Bibles on the uh, chairs there in front of you. And if you're using one of those Bibles, Mark chapter 15, you'll find that on page 1152. Page 1152. And so we're going to start out in Mark this morning. I'm going to read through it, kind of comment on some things that are going on, but ultimately I'm going to get us to Romans chapter 3. So if you have your own Bible and you want to kind of mark that place as well, you can do that. And uh, if you're using the Pew Bibles when we get to that point, I'll tell you what page uh, we're going to on there as well. And so we've kind of been walking through Mark over the last uh, little over a year now. We're, we're toward that end part. And uh, last week we kind of started week one of three where we're going to be looking at the death of Jesus and, and different kind of aspects. And so last week as we looked at uh, Jesus going through these illegal trials at night and ultimately being sentenced to be crucified, uh, we, we, we saw and understood that there was a need for God to give us a substitute, someone to take our place. And so we learned that uh, Jesus took our place so that we would have a place. And so this week we're going to continue on as we we follow Jesus. He's now done with these trials. He's been sentenced to be crucified. And we're going to see him reach that point where he is now crucified. And this morning I want us to briefly kind of wrestle with a question that I think most of you have asked at some point or another. Or maybe maybe you've uh, felt like I can't ask that question 
But we're going to ask it this morning. And that question is this. Why did God have to do it this way? Why, why did Jesus have to die? Did he have to? I mean, wasn't there another way that God could have accomplished what he needed to accomplish? So that's what we're going to kind of wrestle with this morning. And, and so that you kind of know where I'm going, and we'll come back to this, but I want to put this in front of you so you can start chewing on it a little bit. The question's going to come up. Jesus, save yourself. Why don't you save yourself? Here's where I'm going this morning. God did not save Jesus. That means he didn't bring Jesus off the cross. He didn't stop the death from happening. God did not save Jesus so that he could save you. Okay, so that's where we're going this morning. So let's take a look, Mark chapter 15, and uh, we'll read through, and I'll stop along the way to, to kind of highlight a few things, and, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So Mark chapter 15, we're starting in verse 16 this morning. So the soldiers led him, this is now Jesus being led away, the soldiers led him into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called together the whole cohort. Now we're talking a couple hundred soldiers here. They put a purple cloak on him, and after braiding a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Then they knelt down and paid homage to him. When they had finished mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes back on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. The soldiers forced a passerby to carry his cross, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Let me stop there for a minute. You may remember in Mark chapter 8, Jesus said, If anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross and deny himself. Mark is showing us here a picture of that taking place physically. As Jesus is unable to bear his cross physically, the, the soldiers force a man walking by Simon to carry that cross beam for Jesus. A physical picture of carrying the burden that, that comes with following Christ. Now, you also see that Mark gives us a little side note. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now remember, Mark is writing to the church in Rome. That is, the church who uh, is in the city of Rome and who is likely at this point experiencing persecution or that's heating up and he might that, that church might be getting persecution soon. At the very least, they're hearing rumors. They know people who have been persecuted because of what they believe. And so Mark is writing to show them, here's what it looks like to be a follower of Christ in that. Now, the only reason for Mark to make a note like this, Simon of Cyrene, by the way, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus, is if his readers would know these people. And if you were to jump to Romans chapter 16, as Paul's kind of closing out this letter, he's saying, greet this person, greet this person, greet this person. He's greeting people who are leaders in the church of Rome, and one of them comes up, Rufus. Greet Rufus, who is likely the son of Simon of Cyrene. And so there's a possibility here that what we see is the impact of Simon's experience by carrying the cross with Jesus and seeing this take place Ultimately, he either became a believer or at least was able to tell these stories to his children who, one of them at least, Rufus, placed their trust in Christ and now became a leader in the church and Rome. So you see the trickle-down effect of one generation passing to another. All right, so let's keep going here. He, he forced this man to carry his cross, verse 22. They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh. But he did not take it. Then they crucified him. 
divided his clothes, throwing dice for them to decide what each would take. That's all Mark really gives us about the crucifixion, by the way. Then they crucified him. That's it. And then he moves on. And it's not because Mark is making light of it. It's because Mark has some different purposes that he's trying to highlight here. Mark's going to really focus in more on the suffering that Jesus has gone through because he's trying to teach his disciples about suffering as they follow Christ. But don't let this, when you read something like this, then they crucify him. Don't pass over that so quickly. There's so much more involved in that phrase than what we typically give it. Most of us don't want to think about it. Now, this morning, I'm going to spare you from the gory details of the, the process of crucifixion. I think I gave you enough stuff like that last week. So I give you a break. But go and read that if you can stomach it. Go and read the process that took place and how a person actually died from crucifixion. It's so much more than what we typically give than they crucify them. Moving on. There's a lot there. They divided his clothes, throwing dice for them to decide what each would take. It was 9 o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And they crucified two outlaws with him. One on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by defamed him, shaking their heads and saying, Ah, you, you can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, even the chief priests, together with the experts in the law, were mocking him among themselves. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also spoke abusively to him. These people passing by. The chief priests and the, the scribes, the, those who are leaders and the experts in the law, who have handed Jesus over, who have orchestrated all this from a human perspective, they're mocking him. Even, even the two that are crucified on either side are mocking him. And the things that they're saying to him is, you made all these claims. You've saved all these other people. You've healed people. You've made people who can't see, see. People who can't hear, hear. People who can't talk, talk. People who can't walk, walk. And you, you can't come off that cross. You, who could do all these things, you couldn't have prevented this from happening? Save yourself if you really are who you say you are. And the mockery behind what the chief priests and the scribes, who, by the way, would have been your religious leaders of the Jewish people, your pastors and your teachers, they're saying, you know what? If you come off that cross, then we'll believe what you claim. And yet they've not believed yet with all that they've seen. And the reality is they would not believe had he even come off. But here's where I want to go this morning. We read things like this, and maybe we can identify with these mockers. Jesus, save yourself. I mean, we, we are, maybe we've heard it said, or maybe you've even thought this. Jesus, to go and die for others, that's kind of weak. Some of the people who are consider themselves atheists, people who don't believe in God, sometimes they'll look at what God has done and what Christians claim to believe about Jesus' death on behalf of sinners, and they say, why does, why does God go and let him die like that? That's weak. When in reality, what is going on here is the absolute omnipotence, the all-powerful, the strength of Jesus is what actually keeps him on that cross. Because yes, it's true, at any moment, Jesus could call down angels to deliver him. 
He could, he could have prevented this from taking place, but as we read through Jesus' life through the different Gospels, one thing that becomes clear is that Jesus came, and he's living a life that's in submission to God the Father. You'll see him say things like, I come and I do only that which I see the Father do. I say only that which I hear the Father say, and I, and, and I, can, I can only do things if I see the Father do and he's living his life of submission all the way to the garden where we see, saw him wrestle. And he's saying, God, if there's any other way, and yet, God, if this is the way, let your will be done. Right? We've seen Jesus on this mission. And so, yes, he could have at any point. He's, he's God. He's God in the flesh, right? God in a body. He could have delivered himself from the cross. He could have stopped it. He could have, before the last moment, right before they pierced his hands or his feet, he could have called down hellfire and brimstone on these guys. He could have done it. Why didn't he? Why didn't God stop this? Why didn't he do it a different way? Jesus is being mocked by people saying, if you really are who you say you are, save yourself. Why did he not save himself? And so what I want us to do is jump now to Romans chapter 3. And if you're using one of those Bibles from the, the chairs there, you're going to hear page 1272. Because here's, uh, in these verses that we're going to look at this morning, the Apostle Paul, who was, by the way, a man who knew God's mercy uh, personally, who experienced it on, on, a, on a very uh, intimate level. Because if you know anything about Paul, you know he was persecuting the church before he became a believer in Christ. He was killing Christians. He was pulling people out of their homes who were followers of Christ, separating families, imprisoning them, and sentencing them to death until one day God said, that's it, you're mine. Now you will serve me. Now you will do what I would have you do. You will go and share what I would have you share with ultimately the Gentiles and, and everyone Paul could come in contact with. He's a guy who knows God's mercy. He never forgot it. But he's also a very good Jew. He was a Pharisee. One of the leaders. He understood the law. He understood the righteous character of God. That, that character of God that, that was revealed in the Old Testament law. He understood that with God there is no blemish. With God there is no darkness. With God there is no sin. He understood that. And he understood that God was just. Which means he has to do something about sin. As a just God, he has to deal with sin in a just way. Otherwise, he's not just. And so a lot of times as you and I think about God, we love to think about the, the uh, compassionate side of God, the mercy, the grace, the love, right? All those things that are really great, and they are all part of God's character. But a lot of times in focusing on those things, we fail to remember that at the same time, God is just, which means he has to deal with injustice. He has to deal with violations to his glory. And he's a God of wrath, which is the response of justice toward sin the violation of God's glory. And those things all exist in God always at the same time so that God, when He shows grace, it's not that God is not, uh, not wrathful or just at that moment. He's fully just and He's fully uh, filled with wrath towards sin when He's showing us grace and compassion and, and love. And so Paul is wrestling with this. How can God do that? Paul's wrestling with how can God save people like us who are sinful and yet not compromise his righteous character. And that's what he deals with here in Romans chapter 3. And as we read through this, we're also going to see why God had to do it this way. Okay? 
So last week, we, we did look at this verse last week, Romans 3.23, but, but Paul, after summing up in the first couple chapters of Romans that every person, it doesn't matter what category you fall in, whether you're a good religious Jew and you follow the law, whether you're a, just a moral person and you try to do your best and live well, it, it doesn't matter where you fall. Ultimately, you fall under God's wrath for sin because you ultimately are impacted and infected by sin. So he comes to this point in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he says, all have sinned. Every person who has ever placed their trust in Christ, they sinned. Right? There's no person who God has saved who wasn't previously guilty of sin. He says, all have sinned. They've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we looked at last week that that's really the violation there, right? We, we tend to focus on all of sin, and we kind of think in our mind of a list of don'ts. You know, things we're not supposed to do. And we kind of make sin real small. But Paul gives us more. He says, all of sin and you've fallen short of God's glory, and there's your problem. We've taken the glory of God that was given to us in creation, and we've create, uh, we traded it for something else, something else that we chose to give our affection, our glory to. We've taken God's glory, and we've left it. We've fallen short of it. We lack it now. Paul says, all of sin, you're all guilty of falling short of God's glory. But... So even though that's true, even though every person who God has ever saved and will ever save, they're guilty and they're falling short of God's glory. But God, they are freely justified. Now that's a, that's a theological term here and also a legal term. So let's stop for a minute. When Paul says justified, what he means is declares someone to be righteous. Okay, so a judge in a courtroom has a guilty person standing in front of them. But the judge, fully knowing that the person is guilty, decides, I'm going to declare you to be innocent. As if you were actually innocent, even though you really are guilty. The only reason a judge would do that is if the penalty of the law has been taken care of by someone else or by some other means. So when Paul says, God, they are justified freely, what Paul is saying is, God declares you when you place your trust in Christ. He says it is true of you that you're as good as being righteous. Not that you are righteous, but that he declares you as if you are righteous. Which means what he's doing there is he's taking the righteous character of Jesus, which Jesus came, lived the life that every one of us should have lived but couldn't. And so when he did that, 100% perfect, sinless, and then dies for us, he dies a righteous man. And he raises from the dead, he defeats death and sin and, and accomplishes what he says he's going to do. He has a righteousness now that God says, I'm going to take that, and I'm going to apply it to your account, even though you didn't earn it. I'm going to give it to you. So when Paul says that they are freely justified, they are justified freely by God's grace, there's absolutely nothing we do to earn that. Right? There's, there's nothing that we do that makes God say, see, I like that in you. I'm going to go ahead and justify you. I'm going to, I'm going to save you. There's nothing in us that when God looks at us, makes him say, that's worth saving. In fact, he has to look beyond that and look to his son. And it's because of his love for Christ that overflows that he says, I want this love to be experienced by more. And so he does something so that we can experience that. It's by grace, though. Nothing we can do to earn it. And he says so, but they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, so far, here's what we've got Paul saying. Here's the dilemma. Every person who God has ever saved and will ever save is guilty of sinning and falling short of God's glory. And yet, God freely justifies them. He declares them as if they're righteous. 
By his grace, through Christ. Here's now the question. How does God do that? How does God do that without compromising his righteous character? In other words, can God just take sinful people and accept them without dealing with the sin? And the answer is no. And Paul knew that. And so Paul was likely also getting accusations from his Jewish uh, uh, colleagues. Hey, you're preaching this gospel of grace. Isn't that watering down God? Isn't that taking God's character and just muddying it? Because now you're saying people who are guilty, people who are unrighteous, God takes them in? Doesn't that soil your God? Because our God's not like that. So Paul's dealing with that. So let's move on here. In verse 25. So Paul says, God publicly displayed him, that's Jesus, at his death. As the mercy seat, and your translation may say the, say the propitiation, uh, accessible through faith. So let's stop there for a minute, because there's another word that's theological in nature, right? Propitiation. That means uh, something that satisfies wrath, right? So God, who is just, the reaction of his justness toward wrath, uh, toward sin is wrath. That wrath has to be satisfied. In other words, it has to be unleashed and poured out and a penalty paid for it. And that word propitiation is that word. That God's wrath is satisfied. And so what Paul is saying is God publicly put Jesus on display at his death. I mean, okay, think about his death, right? It's public, right? I mean, it was out in the open. It was so public. It was so humiliating. Crucifixion, in fact, was partly designed to be a humiliating death. Not just excruciating, but humiliating. Most people were crucified naked. And I know the picture of Jesus you have hanging on the cross does not have him naked. But if we're being historically accurate, it's quite possible he was naked. Humiliating. Absolutely humiliating. God publicly displayed him at his death as the propitiation and the mercy seat. This picture here, what this translation, the Net Bible is capturing, is an Old Testament imagery. God had this ark of the covenant that he had in the temple in the Old Testament, and it was there that the priests would come and offer sacrifices because right there in that ark of the covenant on the top was what was called the mercy seat. That was the place where sacrifice was made to cover the sins of people. And so the picture here is that's Jesus. God publicly displayed him as that role, to be the one who satisfies the wrath of God for sin. Okay? This was to demonstrate. So why did God do this? Why did he do this publicly? Why did he do it in this way? Now we're getting to the heart of our question. Why did God not do this another way? Why did Jesus have to die? This was, that is God publicly displaying Jesus at his death. God letting Jesus be the one who dies so that he can satisfy the wrath of God towards sin so that you and I can have salvation. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because God in his forbearance, had passed over the sins previously committed. So all throughout the Old Testament, what we learn later as we read through the New Testament is that while Israel was coming and making sacrifice for sins, uh, those, those sacrifices were not eternal. They didn't last forever. There was need to bring another sacrifice when you sin. In fact, the author of the book of Hebrews, one of these New Testament books, says that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. Right? So there's this problem uh, that, that we see is that, well, if, if it can't take away sins, and that means people are still living in their sins, what, what, what's going on here? How can God do this? And Paul's saying, look, 
Because God overlooked sins, he passed by them, he didn't deal with them in a final and eternal way, it's possible that his character has come into question. And so in the death of Jesus, one of the things that God is doing is demonstrating his righteous character to deal with sin. Sin's past, sin's present, and we're going to see sin's future. And so he says he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. That's his righteous character because God in his forbearance, in his patience, in his kindness, he's waited in his mercy that God has chosen to act now and this time as we reach this point mark, but he hadn't acted yet in this way. In his forbearance, he had passed over sins previously committed. But we go on in verse 26. This was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time. So that he would be both the just and the justifier of the one who lived because of Jesus' faithfulness. So not only was God in Jesus' death showing his righteous character to deal with sins from the past, he's also doing it to show right now in the present when Jesus is dying and now for you and I, what God is showing is that he's both dealing with sin and also saving sinners. He's doing this in a way that he can do both without compromising his character. So it says uh, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just, or your translation might say righteous. It's the same word, root word in the Greek. God is doing this so that he would shown to be just. He's dealt with sin, finally eternally, in a way that will last. And, at the same time, he's the one who justifies. Remember that word? Declares you to be as if you were righteous. Saves you. So, in Jesus' death, God is both dealing with your sin, my sin, and he's also providing a means for us to be able to enter back into the relationship with God that we were designed for. Because Jesus, in his death, as the one who takes the wrath of God, took our penalty for sin. He was our substitute, you remember from last week, which we needed. And so when Jesus, on that cross, finally climbs off, which we'll see next week, he's taken off after saying, it is finished. He's done everything he came to do. He's done everything that was required in order for God to deal with sin in a way that was just does not compromise his character, shows him to be righteous both to those in the past and to now those in the present and ultimately to you and I in the future. And he provides the means by which you and I can be saved. That we can enter into that relationship with Christ, with God that we were designed for. He's both the one who's just, deals with sin, and the one who justifies, saves us. See, God's not a, a, a God who has this righteous character but decides to sweep it under the rug to save sinners. It's important that you and I understand that God didn't compromise anything, any value, any characteristic of who he was in order to accept us. See, that would be to make light of our salvation. God dealt with the sin, and that's what we looked at more last week was the weight of that sin placed upon Christ. He dealt with it. Now let me say something here too. Uh, about this this verse, because again, I, I know some of you have been in traditions and church uh, churches where this is taught differently and understood differently. And so, when I say the word justifies, that might have some baggage with it. See, because there's some church traditions uh, that understand this to be a different type of justifying. And so, what I'm saying justify means when I say it, I'm saying God declares you as if you're righteous. 
You get Christ's righteousness credited to your account. God doesn't make you righteous in that moment. Okay? That's different. That means while you are still impacted, infected by sin, God is able to take you in and accept you because you now are given credit for Christ's righteousness, Christ's death, Christ's faithfulness, not because of anything you have on your own. And the theological way to say that is God imputes Christ's righteousness to us. He credits it to us. Some church traditions teach something different, where they teach that in justifying us, God makes us righteous. He imparts righteousness to us. And then a part of that teaching then would include you or I participating in certain church practices to continue to gain that righteous standing. Right? And so we go through and we, we attend certain church services and we, we participate in certain church practices. And as we do that, we're receiving grace from God. And through that, God makes us righteous. That's the understanding. And that's what's taught in some other church traditions. And that is not what's going on here. That's something completely separate. Right? What God is doing here when he justifies, he saves us. In, in our culture, maybe our circles, we would say this is our initial salvation. God declares us as if we were righteous. He gives us the righteousness of Christ in our account. And so when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. He says, based on that, I can accept you. And then the separate process that takes place, but begins at the same time, is that process that you and I are in now. If we place our trust in Christ, it's that process we're in our entire life, where God shapes us and he molds us. And through the spirit that he calls us to dwell in us, as we submit our areas of life to him, he starts to shape and mold us uh, so that we grow more and more mature. That sometimes the Bible would say uh, more and more perfected. Ultimately ending when Christ returns and we go to meet him where we are complete. And then righteous. Not infected by sin in the flesh. And I say that and I make that distinction because if that's something you've heard, that changes the way you live. If your understanding is that in order to be justified, in order to receive the righteous or to be made righteousness, there's things I have to participate in. You're going to have a long life of guilt-ladenness. You're going to have a life of, of, of lacking assurance of whether or not you're actually saved or not, whether or not you've done enough to get in or not. And the beauty of this gospel of grace that Paul is preaching is that God, who is righteous, the way he's able to take you and I in who are sinful without compromising his character is he gives us the righteousness of Christ, which there's nothing that lacks in that. And if you and I now have Christ's righteousness credited to our account, we lack nothing. God fully accepts us because of that. And for you and I then to go and live in a way that says, I've got to still kind of earn this, I'm not sure I'm in, slaps him in the face and says, I don't need that. See, there's a difference. There's a difference in the way it causes us to live and the way it causes us to, to, to look at God because on the one hand, when we understand that God gives us Christ's righteousness, I can rejoice in that God. I can delight in that God because I know I'm fully accepted by Him, by nothing that I've done, but everything that He's done. And there's nothing I can do to change that. That's the beauty of grace. But on the other hand, if I'm living my life in a way where I'm trying to, to build up that, that, that righteousness and that justification, I'm not sure I can delight in that God all the time. Because what if He's not pleased with me? What if I haven't done enough? And why would God put me under that kind of 
burden. Right? It changes the way you live. This is the beauty of the gospel. And so as we wrestle with that question, God, why did you have to do it this way? Why didn't you do it another way? We see God had to do it this way. The reason that God did not save Jesus was so that he could save you. He had to deal with sin, and he had to provide a means for you. That's why he didn't save Jesus. The very people who were calling and mocking out were the very people he was staying up there for. That doesn't shake you up. Stir something up in you. I don't know what it is. Father, how good you are. How loving and gracious you are, bestowing upon us all these graces and mercies that we don't deserve and providing this means of salvation for people who are guilty, people who are sinful and infected by sin and and who, who would not naturally love you, but yet, God, because of your great love, overflowing, you wanted to provide that love. And so you took care of the issue, the block, the sin, by pouring all of your wrath and the pitiful sin on Christ, which was done on our behalf, so that as Christ died and then raised from the dead, we could then believe in His work, believe in Him. And that's all you require. You don't require us to participate in certain services or participate in certain church practices to live a a certain life, to earn that righteousness. God, you freely give it when we believe in Jesus. There's no other God like that. God, would you stir in us the affection that would be appropriate to respond to that, the joy that should come with understanding that. And God, this morning, if there's some here who they've not understood that before, maybe they've never heard it, God, would you open up their heart and help them to understand that this was actually your great love being displayed for people who were unworthy so that you can then make them so that they can know you and be known by you. That's a good, a good God. So Father, we pray for your spirit to work now. Change us because of this. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you uh, will, if you're able, will you please stand and I will dismiss us. There's nothing that you can do or have ever done that prevented God from sending Christ to die for you. He's a God of love. He's a good Father. And He wanted you to be known by Him and to know Him. So go now and depart here and live as people who know God and are known by Him. Do it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. See you guys.